0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing gift that you have given us by revealing yourself to us in your word. I thank you for the gift of speech and this incredible opportunity that I have to put that gift to use by sharing what I've gleaned from my study of your precious word. And with my brothers and sisters here and. Despite what you've already done for us, my words can't accomplish anything unless you pour out your spirit. Season my words with salt and open the hearts of everyone here to hear your message. And we beg you to do that through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, in the text that young Andrew just read for us, jesus gives some specific instructions to his uh, 12 apostles and then he sends them out on a local mission and as we begin i'd like to direct your attention to their response to the commission in verse 6. and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere have you ever considered this question what gospel See, our gospel is based on a set of historical events. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, that Christ has died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, In accordance with the scriptures. But obviously, in Luke chapter 9, none of that has happened yet. Which leads us to wonder, what exactly was the nature of this gospel that the apostles were sent out to proclaim? What is its relationship to our gospel? Is there Another gospel. Well, to focus our thinking, I want to look back at verse 2. Another short verse. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. They were sent to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Then they went out proclaiming the gospel... And healing. So apparently, the gospel is the kingdom of God. We get the same information from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what we have to wrestle with today is just what sort of kingdom was this that the apostles were proclaiming and why is it the gospel or good news? This kingdom is better than any government that the world has ever known and our text today gives us three characteristics of the kingdom of god that clearly show us how much better it is paul explains the divine underpinnings of government in romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7 let me read that to you let every person be subject to the governing authorities Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes. To whom taxes is owed. Revenue. To whom revenue is owed. Respect. To whom respect is owed. And honor. To whom honor is owed. Now when Paul wrote those words. The head of the government. Was a man named Nero. So he knew very well the tendency that governments have to drift from their proper role as defenders of the welfare of their citizens to just one more form of oppressor. So do the framers of our Constitution, as they desired to set up a government that would, in particular, form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and ensure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. The people of Israel wanted much the same thing when they petitioned Samuel to appoint a king for them. And Samuel warns them of what they could come to expect under the rule of a human king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through 18, he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. So let's talk briefly about the sample blessings that the twelve apostolic messengers are to bring with them as they proclaim the coming of the kingdom, the good news. In verse 1, Luke tells us that, that Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Demons are personal, spiritual oppressors, while diseases are impersonal and physical. So let's talk briefly about demons. That's all they deserve, brief discussion. They were once angelic spirits. They were created to worship, serve, praise, and act as messengers for God. They followed Satan in his rebellion. And now they do basically the same sorts of things that we saw him doing in the Garden of Eden. Which is, they question the goodness of God. And the truthfulness of his word. They deny the reality of death and judgment and they appeal to human pride suggesting to anyone who will listen that we have no need for God. They've been known to take control of the thoughts and actions of a human victim and can even afflict pious individuals with physical and emotional suffering, like Job. The case of the demon-possessed man that we talked about a couple of weeks ago is a good illustration of the effect of demonic oppression. Luke tells us, For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Later he adds, For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. What a lonely, desperate existence. And this was exactly the fate that the legion of demons that possessed this man desired for him to have. Deliverance from that kind of demonic oppression was one of the gifts of the kingdom that the apostles had to offer freely now what about diseases oh you know i guess i should mention that you know oftentimes i think gee, i think demonic possession might be a thing of the past i don't really know anybody who's possessed by demons um certainly seemed like it was common enough during Jesus' day, but, you know, Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, written after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places so apparently they're still out there working and disease well I'm a doctor but I don't think I need to tell any of you that we are still oppressed by disease I don't think even the youngest member of the group here has failed to be assailed by misery With illness, and none of us are going to escape unscathed the ravages of human disease, whether on our own bodies or of those we love and care for. We've heard again and again about the crowds that would press in on Jesus looking for healing. Imagine the impact of a dozen guys going out among the highways and byways, curing all diseases it was an epidemic of health but this was only the first fruits of the kingdom blessing the prophets foretold that this these miraculous signs would be preparatory to the arrival of the expected messianic kingdom as jesus puts it as he quotes isaiah chapter 61 In his sermon at the synagogue in Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, if verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 61 had been fulfilled on that day, wouldn't those hearing this good news conclude that the following verses, 5 through 7, would be far behind. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat of the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, They shall rejoice at your lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And so you see, in this kingdom of God, the nations, rather than being the oppressors of Israel, would be its allies and beneficiaries. The kingdom of God, unlike the kingdoms of men, is characterized by blessed deliverance from oppression and exploitation. The second point is that the kingdom of God, unlike the kingdom of men, is characterized by humble authority, granted by divine decree rather than imposed by human conquest. Mark chapter 10 verses 42 to 45 Jesus describes the future role of the apostles who are going to be in authority over the 12 tribes of Israel. But they're not going to exercise that authority the way the kings of Israel exercised it as Samuel had predicted. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's return to our text. As Jesus is sending out the apostles, he gives them their marching orders in verses 3 and 4. Take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bread, no bag, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Twelve guys. This is the conquering army which the king has deployed into the territory which he claims for his kingdom. One man for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. No weapons, no rations, no money, no shelter, not even a spare change of clothes. You may be thinking, conquering army, this this invasion metaphor is not appropriate. Jesus is ushering a spiritual, not a physical kingdom here. I don't think so. Listen to the words of the prophet Daniel as he describes the kingdoms that are to come in his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, verses 37 through 45. "You, O king. The king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given his kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. So they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation clear. These were tangible, physical kingdoms. They're ancient history to us today. But in The first century Palestine, they were a fresh, open sore. They remembered their captivity in Babylon. They remembered their inglorious return as vassals of Artaxerxes of Persia. They remembered the suffering under the tyrants uh, that were the Greeks. And now they chafed under the feet of iron and clay that were the Roman Empire. And they longed for the day that the kingdom of God would crush these oppressors, both foreign and domestic. In Daniel chapter 9, the prophet predicted precisely the day when that kingdom would arrive. And the day was today. And the people knew that. They understood with crystal clarity what the apostles meant when they spoke about the coming of the kingdom of God. Meanwhile, back at the palace. Read with me verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So, as the kingdom is being proclaimed in his domain, the tyrant on the throne is perplexed. Hardly surprising. But I think we're cheating ourselves if we don't think for a moment, about the incredibly complex set of political circumstances that put this little man on the throne. Let me summarize as briefly as I can. We're very well aware that at the end of the Old Testament narrative... Some of the Babylonian captives had been set free by Artaxerxes and Cyrus to reestablish their territory in Palestine. They had rebuilt the temple and uh, the defensive walls of the city, and they were being governed locally by a man named Nehemiah, who was a Jew. This relatively happy situation did not last. After the defeat of Darius III of Persia by Alexander the Great, Alexander died suddenly without an heir, and his empire was fragmented among his generals. One of them, Seleucus Nicator, would establish the Seleucid dynasty to the north of Palestine, while another, Ptolemy Soter, would establish another kingdom the Ptolemaic Empire, in Egypt to the south. these two nations, the north and south, fought wars against each other for about a hundred years over possession of Palestine. Eventually, the northern king was victorious, and as a celebration for his victory, he outlawed the Jewish religion, Including sacrifices, circumcision, temple worship, uh, festivals and holidays. Um, And then to add insult to injury, he put a statue of Zeus inside the temple and he sacrificed pigs on the altar. This was a little too much for the Jews and they rose in revolt. Under the leadership of the Maccabees, who were ultimately successful in establishing an independent Jewish nation that lasted for about a hundred years. Under John Hyrcanus, one of the Maccabees, or the Hasmoneans, they were successful in conquering the territory of Edomia, otherwise known as Edom, or the territory of Esau, and Samaria, and by doing that, they were able to reincorporate Galilee, the northern Jewish territory, into their holdings. But the grandsons of Hyrcanus fought a civil war against each other, and that civil war was broken up by military intervention from the Roman consul Pompey. With the assistance of one of the members of the Hasmonean court, an Idumean named Antipater, who subsequently greatly expanded his influence by choosing to support Julius Caesar in the Roman civil war against Pompey. So when civil unrest again broke out in Palestine, among the Hasmonean heirs, Antipater's son, Herod, was named king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. He captured the Hasmonean king Antigonus II and sent him to Mark Antony, who executed him. So here we have Herod on the throne in Judea, and he is suffering from a perceived lack of legitimacy. Why? Well... The Jews had been oppressed by, four, by foreign rulers for 400 years. And then they had established a royal dynasty and an independent Jewish state for 100 years. Now, the heirs of the old kingdom, the sons of David, were very wisely living out their lives in obscurity but these hasmoneans the sons of the maccabees were blue-blooded descendants of aaron and they served both as the high priest and as the king in israel so perceived to be very legitimate now here was herod an idumean a son of esau convert to judaism and he was sitting on the throne he attempted to solidify his authority by marrying the hasmonean heiress. Her name was Mariamne, had two sons by her, and they became his legitimate heirs. He sent his ex-wife, or his first wife, and his oldest son into exile. But he was never really secure with his hasmonean wife, and so he accused her of adultery and an attempt to poison him and had her executed. Then to snub her two sons, he brought his oldest son back in from exile and named him as his heir. Then he executed the sons of Mariamne. And then he executed his oldest son. So he named his youngest son to be his heir heir. And that's how the situation stood at the time that Luke's gospel begins. Is it any wonder that this insecure man, when he heard of the arrival of the legitimate messianic heir, the son of David, sought to put him to death, and when he couldn't do that, He tried to kill all the infants in the region of Bethlehem in order to exterminate the line and protect his own dynasty. Well, shortly before his death, Herod the Great had another inspiration and changed his will and testament yet again. And instead of leaving his kingdom to his youngest son, he divided it among three of his sons. His kingdom would be ruled by these three sons and the youngest, his former heir, would get the regions of Galilee and Perea while his two brothers would get the other territories of the kingdom. This young man is known as Herod Antipas and he is the Herod in our story. His older brother, Archelaus, one of the three tetrarchs, uh, became very unpopular because of the brutal way that he handled the rebellion in Judea, in Jerusalem, and also because he married the widow of one of Mariamne's sons, his half-brother. And this was considered an illegitimate Levitical marriage, leveret marriage. So he was deposed by the Romans, and his territory was set up as a Roman... uh, uh, a Roman province under a procurator. Meanwhile, Herod, our hero, had married his niece, the daughter of one of the of the other of the two sons of Mariamne. Uh, this was a move that would uh, legitimize his own rule because of the Hasmonean connection that his niece had. Um, But this niece also just happened to be the ex-wife of his brother, Philip, the other Tetrarch. And doing this brought him condemnation from John and led to the execution of John, his beheading, as you're well aware of, from uh, Matthew's Gospel, and as is mentioned in our verse 9. So here Herod sits in his palace. Not quite a king. He hears that the time for the restoration of the legitimate kingdom is at hand. Not quite a Jew. He, knew, he hears that news of this kingdom is being proclaimed to the 12 tribes who just happen to live in the territory that he rules. Not quite in control of his own family because he's not quite in control of his own family lusts and ambition he sits perplexed while mighty works are performed not only by his rival but by his rival's lieutenants in his domain great crowds followed jesus wherever he went but somehow this man can't figure out where he is psalm 2 verses 1 to 4 puts it this way why do the nations rage And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. And the rulers of their councils together. Against the Lord. And against his anointed saying. Let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The kingdom of God is superior to the kingdoms of men because unlike them it is characterized by humble authority that is divinely determined and not based on human conquest. My final point, I'll be brief, but it's really critically important. And that is that the kingdom of God unlike the kingdoms of men is Characterized by voluntary citizenship with attendant privileges and responsibilities. No one is born or enslaved into this kingdom. All must repent and believe the gospel. Notice what the Lord says in verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. When the people of Israel were offered the kingdom, they were offered a choice. You think, well, wait, it was God's will that the Lord should suffer and die. That's true. But the choice was legitimate anyway. Would they trust in God's ability to establish a kingdom not made by human hands? Would they be willing to face the wrath of Pharaoh and paint the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, identifying themselves as his enemy? Or would they say instead, we have no king but Caesar? Let me remind you, of a little place in the Old Testament narrative called Kadesh Barnea. Spies were sent out from Kadesh Barnea into the land by Moses to scout out the land and see what it looked like. And they came back with a report, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. But there were giants dwelling in the land and they are powerful, and they are more powerful than us. The wilderness generation at that moment had an opportunity. It was a window of opportunity. They could walk into the promised land, and they didn't do it. Instead, they waited for a better offer, and the window of opportunity slammed shut. The wilderness generation wandered for 40 years in the desert and died there Because they failed to walk in faith through that window of opportunity. The mission of the 12 was another Kadesh Barnea moment for Israel. They could repent and believe the gospel, or they could wait for a better offer. They chose the latter. Now, here's where this comes into play for you and for me. For 2,000 years, a window of opportunity has been open to enter into the kingdom of God. Ever since Cornelius and his household were converted, the, the Holy Spirit de- de- descended on them, and it was recognized that non Jews like us could become members of God's kingdom. One day, that window of opportunity is going to slam shut. Instead of the Lord of glory, we will be offered the king we really deserve, the son of destruction. Today, our mission is very similar to the mission that was given to the 12 apostles as they were sent out to Palestine to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, we're supposed to go into all the world and preach his gospel to every nation. And that world includes this nation, this state, this city, this neighborhood. Maybe you've thought, well, it's been 2,000 years. The Lord is a long time coming. Well, that's true, but every day in those 2,000 years, time has run out for somebody. Maybe today is that day for somebody you care about, maybe somebody on your list of five. As Brenda has pointed out to me many times, you have got to open your mouth because the kingdom of God, unlike the kingdom of men, is characterized by voluntary citizenship with its attendant privileges and responsibilities. No one is born into this kingdom, no one's dragged in it against their will. All must repent and believe the gospel. So open your mouth. The kingdom of God. Proclaimed in today's gospel is unlike any form of government that has ever existed. It's characterized not by oppression, but by deliverance from oppression. Not by authority that is forced, but by humble authority granted by God. Citizens in this kingdom is voluntary. It's freely offered, but it must be freely accepted and shared. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that you have given us to proclaim. Give us the strength to proclaim it boldly and constantly until your son returns physically to rule us here. And may that day come soon. We ask these things in his name.